And good morning. Good morning, everyone. Nice to be with you here in worship this, this morning. Um, this is my spiritual home, so very nice to see you all and, and to be with you here. And um, I, this is totally unsolicited. David and I, there was no collusion between us before the service, but Terry and I, when we worked in Ethiopia, we worked very closely with a number of churches that are partners for um, Compassion there and worshiped in some of them. And I used to have my daily devotions with the office staff from the Compassion team there in, in Addis Ababa. And I'll tell you what, they are seriously Christ-focused people and wonderful programs, and very, very meaningful programs. We were always consistently impressed with the work of Compassion throughout Ethiopia. So there you go, David, that's for free. Um, and it's also sincere. And we are a, a sponsor family, so um, that's my... That's my endorsement for compassion anyway. Um, we are, we're looking at uh, this, um, we're following the life of Simon Peter. And today this passage in John's Gospel, chapter 21 of John's Gospel, is, is really kind of a critical turning point for Peter. Um, who he becomes, where he goes after this, very different from the Simon Peter who's gone before. Um, and although we're, we're focusing, and I'm looking more closely at the particular verses that um, Phil read for us, it's important to kind of set those verses in the context of the whole chapter. It's a chapter, is a story that really works very well as a whole unit. So the first part of this chapter, John sets the scene for us, really for Peter's restoration. It's a very personal restoration. And um, for us, you know, typically sermons to us as a church preached from, from the scripture, uh, maybe especially from the New Testament. Largely, they're preached to us as a church, as a whole people, or even to the church, the universal body of Christ. Today's passage and today's story are very personal. They're really much more to us as individual believers. And John sets the scene for that at the first part of his chapter, um, Jesus' restoration of Peter. He, he sets the scene by providing us with these images that are, are redolent of everything important, these, these important moments uh, in the Gospels that have come before this. The, the boat that's been out fishing all night long and catching nothing, and then at Jesus' behest, throws the, the net in one more time and comes back with this huge load of fish. And the loaves and the fishes that Jesus uses to feed his disciples and breaking bread with his followers there. But one particular little detail that John includes, and it's not in all of your English translations, unfortunately. The fire at which Jesus sets this scene, which he's preparing this meal, is a charcoal fire. And the only other place that that term is used in the Bible is the scene that Graham has shared with us, going back a bit, where Peter denies Jesus for the first time at a charcoal fire. Important little detail, but it's there. And it's, it's sort of uh, emblematic of, of the way that John has set the scene for us so that all of this is kind of going on in the background. Then Jesus sits down with his followers and with Peter. And he has this conversation with Peter. He says to Peter three times, do you love me? He says, in fact, he calls him Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter responds to him each time. By the end, he's, he's getting a little frustrated or um, exasperated with Jesus. And importantly, each of these three times, 
is a very appropriate, uniquely appropriate and deeply personal way for Jesus to unwind that, that story that we've already seen where Peter betrays Jesus three times. He's very careful, Jesus, to, to really enforce and to, to deepen the message that he's, he's giving Peter in this moment. Turning back each of those instances of betrayal. Um, and not only that, but he follows it up each time by giving Peter a commission. It's a challenge, isn't it? In fact, he's really calling Peter to take on this huge responsibility. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus is giving him responsibility for his ministry. A huge, not just restoration. It's very much certainly that, but it's even a promotion for Peter. Peter, who, who hasn't had this conversation with Jesus, you can imagine is, is wondering, you know, where, where do I stand with Jesus? After everything I've done, after everything I failed to do, where do I stand with Jesus? And Jesus leaves him in no doubt whatsoever. And it, it could have been different. Could have been different. Jesus could have met him at the shoreline, right? As he, Peter does this wonderfully impulsive thing and leaps off the boat and swims to Jesus as soon as he realizes who's there waiting for him on the shoreline. And Jesus could have dried him off and picked him up and said, you know, I forgive you. And no, okay, let's move on. It's the past is the past. Let's, we've got work to do. Let's get on with it. He doesn't do that. He very carefully walks him through each of these three moments where he's turning back undoing those moments of betrayal that Peter would know all too keenly. Then he's giving him more responsibility. Um, and for us, at this point, we can step out of the text for just a moment because the, the personal way in which this is done speaks to us. It's important to us. What's going on here is a very, very personal moment between Jesus and Peter, a moment of restoration. And uh, for each of us, we have, hopefully we have an experience of Jesus that is deeply personal for us and uniquely appropriate for us in our lives that we can point to and we can, we can say, yes, this is the moment where it all changed for me, where I came to faith, where I realized who I was before God, what I needed, who Jesus was. Like the testimony of Richmond this morning, the unique, uniquely appropriate and deeply personal way that God reached into his life and brought him to faith. Each of us, I hope everyone in this church has a moment like that or some equivalent of that that you can, you can point to. But this moment is not about that experience. This moment is about what comes after. Because this moment picks up the story for us as followers of Jesus, those who have already placed our faith in Him, those who are committed to Him, those who have called Him Lord and say that we follow Him and even say that we trust Him. At this moment, this moment speaks to us, particularly in confronting our own betrayals of Jesus. Because they're there, aren't they? If we're honest with ourselves and certainly with, with God, if we're clear about this, we, we betray Jesus. In fact, we regularly betray Jesus. It may be in the, our unwillingness to trust Him, our unwillingness to trust God, really trust God for that financial security that we're working so hard to achieve and, and, and take hold of ourselves. It may be in our unwillingness to trust God for our children, 
which is hard, but which we're called to do. In fact, which we must do. And we struggle to do. It may be as simple as a conversation that we're a part of, where we realize that our Christian testimony, our Christian convictions, our faith, may rub up against the character of that conversation and the people who are involved. So we, we mute our convictions and who Jesus is for us. And in those moments, we betray Jesus. Let's be clear. And in those moments, in the follow-up to those moments, there are two images that are important for us. Because in those moments, we're very vulnerable. What happens is Satan, he loves those moments. He absolutely loves them, and he's fantastic at exploiting them. Just, just to demonstrate how, how cunning and manipulative he is, he, he quietly enters into those moments with us in the aftermath, when we're, when we're sort of highly conscious of, of what we've really done, and we're sensitive to the shame that we feel, and a sense of guilt, and, and a clear sense that we have actually betrayed our Lord. And Satan preys on those moments. And what he says to us in those moments is really insidious. And it reflects in understanding, his understanding of, of who we are and where we're weak. He says to us, you say Jesus is your Lord. You say you're a Christian. You say you follow this Jesus. And that you've grown. You haven't. You haven't changed at all. You are the same morally corrupt, godless person that you were way back then. You haven't really changed at all. Who do you think you are? And he preys on our vulnerability in those moments. And Jesus steps into that moment before the throne of judgment and he says against those accusations and those criticisms, against everything that those voices in our ears are telling us, he says, this one is mine. This one is mine. And then he turns to us. And he lifts us up, like he does with Peter here. He restores us. He reminds us of who we are for him. He doesn't ignore what we've done. But he allows us to see him in our lives for who he is. And he does something even more wonderful he gives us more responsibility and blessing. He says, of course you're forgiven. And I'm still with you. And now, let's take the next step together. Just as he's done here to Peter. Powerful voice against everything that's going on in the background. But there's more here in the text. So I want to come back to the text and... Um, and look at the conversation as it goes on with Peter. Um, as Jesus is speaking to Peter, he says, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Agapao ego. He uses a very particular word there. Peter, do you love me with agape love? With that unique biblical love that's unconditional, that's unqualified. That's sacrificial. That is the very love that Jesus himself has shown for, for Peter and for his followers in going to the cross for them. Do you love me like this, Peter says. Jesus says to Peter. And Peter says, 
Phileosai. I love you in a brotherly way. Filial love. I love you like a brother. He gives a different answer to the question that Jesus is asking. I love you like a brother. So Jesus repeats the question. Simon, son of John, agapao ego. Do you love me with agape love? Peter says, phileo sai. I love you like a brother. And then interestingly, on the third time, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, phileo ego, do you love me like a brother? And Peter, of course, by now, he's a bit agitated. Of course, you know everything. You know that I love you, he says, like a brother. And the distance between those two loves is actually an enormous distance. It's an honest answer that Peter's giving. But what Jesus is calling him to, as he's giving him this new commission now, is what is the nature of that love, really? Do you love me like I have loved you? Are you willing to love my people like I love my people? And Peter gives him an honest answer. But what's really interesting is what comes next. Jesus, in verse, um, in verse 18, he says this to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And of course, in one instance, on one level, this is, a, this is literally a prophecy of Peter's death, of the way in which Peter is going to die. But it's also a prophecy of the life he's going to go on to live. Peter, like most of us, in those moments when Jesus is restoring us, he, he's honest about where he's at. And Jesus meets him where he's at. He says to him that third time, okay, do you love me like a brother? He says, yes. And then he goes on to say, but you will love me with the love that I have for you. You will come to discover that you will love me and the people whom I love in the way that I have loved you. That will be the character of your life and that will take you to your death ultimately. So it's, it's, it's a profound affirmation of Peter in ways that Peter can't fully understand, probably doesn't fully understand in the moment. But he adds this, and this is really important, again, for us. He, he takes Peter through that prophecy, and he finishes it by saying, follow me. Follow me. Because the, the only way through to that love to that life, to the willingness to make that sacrifice. The only way through the betrayals and the, the many ways in which we let Jesus down, the only way through the fears and the anxieties, even the fear of death itself, the only way through these, all of these, as Jesus sees, is to follow him. And this isn't only a command, it's an invitation. Jesus isn't twisting arms here. He's given Peter the affirmation and now he's opening up the pathway. Follow me. There really is only one way through this. There's only one way through it for us. There was only one way through it for Peter. And I want to tell a story that I think, I hope, makes this point particularly well. 
Terry and I, um, when, we were, when we first went to Ethiopia um, with the mission in the late 1980s, Ethiopia was ruled by a communist dictatorship at that time. And it had a powerful antipathy against anything Christian, particularly evangelical Christians, and actively sought to disrupt the churches, to uh, arrest the, the leaders, really anyone who was seen to be or known to be doing anything openly Christian at all, even weddings. The, the, the uh, security forces could come to a wedding if it heard there was one on, a Christian wedding, and it would arrest everyone in that wedding, regardless of whether they were just watching or whether they were actually performing the rituals or whatever. They would arrest everyone on the basis of anti-state activities because they were demonstrating their Christian faith. So powerfully against the Christian movement in Ethiopia. And in this setting, in this context, there was a young man who, from a Muslim background, who came to faith through the testimony of someone who brought him the gospel and shared it with him. He came to know Jesus, he came to faith, and it was a powerful transformation for him. His eyes were really open, and he was deeply grateful that God would step into his life and, and, and shine the light of the gospel into it that he could see and respond to. And as a consequence, he was a keen evangelist. He wanted to share the gospel with anyone and everyone, and he was also a bold evangelist. He would share this gospel wherever he went, whatever community. Um, he traveled around quite a bit, became kind of an itinerant evangelist, really looking for opportunities to share the gospel at a time when that was a particularly dangerous thing to do. And even his friends, even his Christian friends, warned him and said, you know, you've got to back off this a bit. You're going to get yourself into trouble. People are taking notice. And all he could say was, how can I? How can I? He's given me everything. How can I? And sure enough, he was arrested. He was arrested for subversive activities. Preaching the gospel is a subversive activity. He was arrested. He was not tried. He wasn't taken before a judge or a tribunal or anything. He was simply hauled off to a notorious prison where the regime was holding the, represented the uh, officials of the previous government in one place. And that prison was a notorious prison. It was a prison from which no one who went in ever came out alive. <clears throat> it was known for its brutality. It was also known for its finality. That was the prison into which this evangelist went. What he found when he got there is he was put in a cell. And it was a cell that was roughly the size of a modest living room. And at any given time, there were 30 to 35 men in that cell with him, packed pretty tightly. At night, when they slept on the floor, they had to sleep in such a way that if one rolled over, they all had to roll over at the same time. Because it was that tight. They were packed in that tightly together. They had one bucket as a toilet. And they were allowed to empty that bucket once a week. They had two buckets of water that were brought to them in the morning. And all of the men in that room had to subsist off of the water that was brought to them. It wasn't particularly clean water either, as I understand it. This was their life. This was the life that they had. And occasionally, the guards would come. They would read out a name from their list and call that prisoner out of the cell, take him off, and everyone in that cell would begin quietly weeping because they knew that for him, this was the end. And that was all that any of them in there had to look forward to. They were totally without hope. 
This was the setting into which this evangelist went. And when, after he was there for a few days, after he saw what was going on, the way these men lived, they fought over scraps of food and they pushed each other and fought to get to that water when it was brought in. They treated each other like animals and they had no hope. He thought, this is, this can't, I can't allow this to go on. I can't fail to speak to this. So he began to share the gospel with each of the men in that cell. And he began to remember and to recite for them stories from the Bible, stories about Jesus. And he was amazed at what he could remember. Sometimes whole passages, major parts of the, of the gospel accounts and so forth. And he would sit there and at night, the prisoners would sit and they would listen enthralled to these stories. And for the first time, this deep subterranean sense of hope started to emerge. And he taught them hymns. And then after a while in the morning, as a whole group, they would get up together at sunrise and they would sing hymns. Sometimes they would go on and sing hymns for hours. And the guards who were watching all this take place, they thought, this is incredible. This is bizarre. What is going on? These, these men were, they were like animals before. And now they, they seem almost like they're enjoying themselves. What's going on? They just couldn't fathom what was going on. Well, this went on for months. And gradually, as the tone of hope began to, to rise among those men, when those guards came to take away one of those prisoners and haul him off to his final end, they didn't weep anymore. They patted him on the back, they kissed him, they, they farewelled him, they prayed for him, they blessed him, and he left with a sense of joy and hope. And again, the guards, they knew something dramatic had happened. They couldn't begin to explain it. And then the day came when the guards came for the evangelist himself. They called his name. And when they did, the whole place just went hushed. And as he went to the door, he just blessed everyone, thanked them for their brotherhood, and he went off peacefully. What he didn't know is that he wasn't going to his execution. He was going to the office of the governor of the prison. And the guards hauled him in there. They sat him down before the governor. The governor was sitting at his desk and he had a letter in front of him. And he looked at the evangelist and he said, in all of my years in this prison, as governor of this prison, no one has ever left this prison alive. None of the prisoners have ever gone from here alive. And I've never seen a letter like this. And he literally said... You must have friends in very high places. Because what that letter said was, this prisoner, his name, is to be released and given his freedom with no further inquiry. Full stop. That was it. A direct order from the central government. And the governor looked at that and he said, I've never had a letter like this. I've never seen, I, I've checked to verify that it's true, it's accurate, this is an order from the central government. You're free. And the evangelist sat before the governor in that chair, and he bowed his head, and he began to weep. And the governor was, you know, was willing to let that go on for a little bit, but he stayed. And finally the governor said to him, I've just told you, unlike anyone else who's ever been in here before, I've just told you you're free. Aren't you going to go? And the evangelist looked at him and he said, if I could, 
I would rather stay. I would rather stay here with my brothers because in this place is Jesus. And where Jesus is, there's joy. You can imagine that governor was totally flummoxed. He had no basis for responding to that. All he could do was listen to what this man said. <clears throat> and he, was, he could see it was entirely sincere. He couldn't believe it. But he sat there for a minute, and then he dismissed his secretary, and the other guards were standing there, and he said, okay, now tell me what you're talking What is it you're talking about? How can this be possible? You've been given the greatest gift that anyone in this prison has ever been given, and you don't want it because you feel like you've got something better. What is that? And the evangelist, of course, shared the gospel with that man in that room. And a few years later, when that governor himself was arrested by the communist authorities, who had a, who had a great habit of arresting and executing their own, um, their own followers, their own people, when he went into prison, as he went into that same prison, he got a message out through the guards to the evangelist to say, thank you, thank you, Jesus is here. This is where joy is. I'm at peace. I have hope. Thank you. He said that much. Because where Jesus is, there's joy. And that's what Jesus is saying to us as he tells us to follow him. To follow him through the things that we're facing, that we fear. The things that we're holding on to, that we're reluctant to let go of the little control that we have of our lives that we badly want to keep. Against all of that, Jesus is saying, there's really only one way through this. Follow me. Because where Jesus is, for Peter, for each one of us, there's joy. Not the counterfeit, temporary alternative that we call happiness, that we work so hard to achieve or to grab a hold of or to try to keep and can't, but the permanent, the echo of eternity, the deep peace and contentment and hope that comes with the presence of Jesus. Joy, the real thing. This is what Jesus calls us to. This is what he invites us to. This is what he's inviting us to when he says to follow him. And this is where he took Peter. And you can look at the life of Peter, can't you? You can see from this point on where he goes. He didn't have any imagination. He had no idea. And yet, he becomes the apostle that we know. The peace, the contentment, the confidence, and the joy. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we, uh, we can really only thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the, the deeply personal way he reaches into each of our lives as we need it when we are most fearful, in some ways perhaps most reluctant to come to him, most aware of our own failings and the, and the many ways that we've let him down. He nevertheless comes to us in just this way and he lifts us up and he restores us. He draws him back to himself, and then he blesses us. And Father, this is, this is wonderful for us, but this is the very picture of the kind of love that you have for us, that you're calling us to.
And so we thank you for that. If thank you is really enough at all, we thank you for that. And we pray that you would continue to lead us and give us the courage because we need it. Our hearts continually fail us, but we need the courage that you can give us through your spirit to follow Jesus where he leads each of us. For each one of us, where that may be different and unique and sometimes feel very lonely that we would have your courage to follow him. And as we do, Father, we pray that we would discover the joy that he has for us, that he intends to, wants to, badly looks to give us and to share with us. We thank you that it's all possible because of him. And we pray to you in his name. Amen.